Hello and welcome to Connect Points podcast and sermon archives. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please go online to our website at connectpointupc.com or follow us on our Facebook page. Thank you very much and I hope you enjoy this week's message. God bless. in Luke 12 that I'm about to, to read, 43 through 48, is directed mostly at his disciples, although there's other people around. It's mostly at his disciples because they do a little follow-up sidebar conversation with Jesus about a parable that he has been saying. And he goes on and he says, Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all he hath. But, and if that servant says in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens, and to eat and drink, and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him. Now, let me just clarify that real quick, because some people have a misconception about that. He says, if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, everything's going to work out fine. But if you start thinking, well, God's, he's never going to come back again, that's never going to happen. And then you start doing sinful things. He says, then the Lord will come in a day when he looketh not for him. That doesn't mean that God's going to do some sort of manipulative trickery. It just means you're going to be so wrapped up in your sins that you're not going to be paying any attention. Right? Okay. And so at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him asunder and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers and that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, this is the part of this little context that we mostly know about, to whom much is given to him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much of him they will ask the more and so we're this is Jesus in the New Testament talking about the fact that if you have had a closer relationship with God if you have been given more then there's more required of you and if you have been given more and 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 you you don't do it and you turn your back on God or you rebel and sin against God the punishment therefore is greater all right so just keep keeping that in mind, because when we're reading in the Old Testament, we can think sometimes it doesn't apply, but this is Jesus and Luke. So this is the same approach that the Lord is taking with Israel through Amos all the way back there. They had been given more than anyone else, therefore their sin against God was a greater affront. And I think we can understand that. Can we not? I think we can understand that, because we know how that is as well. Amos 3, 3. Let's just look at some verses kind of a little bit quickly here. He says 3, 3. So right after that, can two walk together except they be agreed? The two here that he's talking about are God's judgments and the prophet's words. He's saying God's judgment and my words, if they don't agree, this isn't going to work out. And you know that, and I know that, and he knows that, and so that's what Amos is saying. Verse 4, then he goes on to give some uh, illustrative things. Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he have uh, taken nothing? And so this verse of scripture is saying the lion roars as it attacks and as it stands over its fallen prey. That's when the lion roars, okay? 
So at that, that moment of attack, that strikes such great fear into, the, uh, into its prey, and then after it has killed and subdued its prey, uh, it, it, it roars. And so the, Amos is using an illustration here to say that a lion doesn't roar in the forest if he does, hasn't taken anything. So God doesn't roar from heaven if he's not about to do something. Judgment's coming, is what he's saying. And then he says, will a young lion cry out of his den if he have nothing? And this young lion, this phrase does not mean uh, a baby lion, which is I don't, like a whelp or whatever they call them. It doesn't mean that. It means that a young lion that has taken and dragged its prey into a den, he's not going to be in there roaring if he doesn't have something in there that he's killed and that he's eating. And so this Amos is using this illustratively to point out that judgment is coming quickly and there's nothing you're going to be able to do about it. Amen. It's a lot of judgment in chapter 3. Okay? Can a bird, he says, fall on a stair upon the earth? Where no, and I think it's gin, but I don't know, could be gin. Gin is for him. Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? And so he says, Amos is speaking to Israel, and he's like, look, you've been caught in a trap. And the reason you've been caught in the trap is because you were somewhere you weren't supposed to be. You were someplace doing something. Sin has got you. The, the, that that again is a was a was a net that was they 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 created a net system and it was on a trigger stick. And so when the bird would come and and you've seen all kinds of traps like this before, it would get into where the vicinity of that net was and then it would trigger something that would release a stick that would throw the net over the top of it. And so basically, the Lord through Amos is saying, you were there. You were committing sins and whoredoms and idolatrous acts, and eventually you set your own trap. Sin is the trap, and you brought it upon yourself, is what he's saying. It's self-inflicted. Somebody say self-inflicted. It's self-inflicted. Sin is always self-inflicted. Right? Sin is, nobody can make you sin. That's not how it works. Sin is always self-inflicted. And so he goes on, verse 6. He gives another illustration. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city, and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? Now, once again, if you just read that uh, uh, with not a whole lot of understanding, it seems a little odd. But first of all, he points out that any time in these major uh, cities of the day that there was a sudden loud trumpet blast, that usually meant bad. That was usually some sort of warning that something bad was about to happen. So a sudden blast of the trumpet was a bad thing. And then he goes on to say, uh, uh, shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done. And so he knows that the, the alarms are designed to get their attention and that most of them were signals of an impeding attack. But the evil is the affliction that is being sent upon them. Okay. So it will be clear to them, this is what he's saying. He's saying, look, it's going to be very clear to you that this is coming from the Lord. Whether, whether it comes through attack from a nation without, whether it comes from some sort of pestilence, whether it comes from an earthquake that Amos mentioned there in verse one, uh, chapter 1, whether it comes like that, it don't matter how it comes, Amos says you're all going to know what it is. Oh, hallelujah. It's all, you're, everybody's going to be aware 
that this is the judgment of God. He goes on in verse 7, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth the secret unto his servants, the prophets. So what he's saying is God would not have done this, he will not do this without warning you. And Amos is saying, by the way, here I am warning you. Right? This is how God operates. God operates by, he lets you know, this is, this is one of the significant differences. Uh, we, we've got, in, in 2019, we've got a box with the devil in it and a box with God in it. And the box with the devil has got evil in it. The box with God in it has got good in it. And the box with the devil is, he, he's the only one that can do anything negative, negative. And the box with God in it, all he can do is positive things that we like. And that's not true at all. It's not true. In fact, the devil finds ways to, if I can do a little air quote, bless people all the time. He does. He finds ways to give people things that they want because he knows that it will work against their relationship with God. So that's the truth. There's also a truth about God and how he interacts with people that he always doesn't do things that we like. So sometimes when bad things happen, it's because God said so. Amen. You say, well, pastor, can you explain the difference between all of those every time? No, I can't. I'm sorry. I don't always know exactly what the, what, what the, uh, <laughs> what's going on. All I know is this. Ultimately, everything the devil does leads to destruction. And ultimately, everything that God does is for our good, whether we can see it now or not. Right? But he says he's going to let you know. The lion hath roared, who will not fear? Verse 8. The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? So this is Amos' way of saying, see, he's just said a bunch of stuff that nobody wants to hear. Now, you've got to get this in your mind now, okay? Amos didn't just sit at home in his house and write a book and produce it and put it on some shelves in a bookstore in the northern kingdom. <laughs> he went there got to where the crowds of people were, and then started saying, thus saith the Lord. So do you think that would be fun? He just spent all these verses talking about the, <laughs> their sinfulness, their unrighteousness, and the judgment that's going to happen. And so then, right, when it's probably about the point where he's got a good crowd of people ready to, you know, shut him up, he points out that, the lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? He basically says, the Lord has spoken, and I don't have any choice but to tell you what God is telling me to tell you. He roared, and it's my job to tell you what he said. He's, made, he's like saying, look, I, I'm just the messenger. Please don't kill me. Verse 9, it says, publish in the places of Ashdod. This is really interesting to me. Publish in the places of Ashdod and in the palaces of the land of Egypt and assemble yourselves into the mountains of Samaria and behold the great tumults in the midst thereof and the oppressed in the midst thereof. And so Amos is speaking. He, said, he gives notice uh, to their neighbors, neighboring nations, and the prophet is ordered to publish it in the palaces of Ashdod, which was one of the chief cities of the Philistines. Okay, and then not only to the Philistines, but he was supposed to go even further uh, to the land of Egypt. 
And, and so, so representatives of the land uh, of the Philistines and the land of the Egyptians are called to go to the high places, the mountains of Samaria, to go to the high places so that they can overlook into what is about to happen in Israel. Okay, everybody kind of get that, that picture there? And so these are the Philistines and the Egyptians. These have been uh, some of the main uh, enemies of God's people. These are like the ones, if you say, well, who were the people that were you know, really the problem for God's people? Well, we're all gonna say the Egyptians because of what they went through there. But then the, the Philistines, the Bible at one point calls the Philistines the perpetual enemy of Israel. And so here they are, these two nations are called as representatives, if you will, to stand on the high places and look over and, and, and be uh, uh, the to personally witness the mighty acts uh, that are about to happen to Israel. You say, well, why would they do that? Because these two nations also personally witnessed the mighty acts that God did for Israel. Egypt knows better than anybody what God did for Israel. And the Philistines know better than most the things that God did, right, for Israel. And so he says, look, you, you, you are going to have witnesses that are going to be able to really see the iniquity and the ingratitude of Israel. These are people who know you should be serving your God with everything you got after what he's done for you. And when they see what you're actually doing, they're going to be able to call, they're going to be, they're, they're, these are good witnesses. I find that to be very interesting that their past enemies whom God defeated are now called as witnesses against them. Man, I hope I'm never in that place. I hope, you know, I don't know. You know, you stand there, the Bible says you stand there, the books are open before you and judgment is given and I hope that I'm not standing there seeing all of the things that God did for me and all the enemies that God kept me from and, and, and delivered me from, and they're looking at me saying, and you couldn't serve the Lord? And you couldn't be righteous? And you couldn't be just after all that? Remember, how these nations must have truly felt about Israel, because they all had gods, but they had all lost at some point to God. Because, and they knew Israel doesn't have idols. Israel doesn't carve their gods with their hands. Israel doesn't have any of this stuff that they do. And every time Israel says a prayer or offers a sacrifice, fire falls from heaven or the earthquake hits or, 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 or you know, giants fall, whatever you want to say. And so they know in their heart that the God of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this God is the God. And surely it would just be astounding to them to see, you mean you had that God on your side and you chose disobedience? Amen. He goes on 10 and 11 of chapter three, for they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, an adversary there shall be even round about the land, and he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. Now, let's clarify. 
He says they do not know to do right. It's not that they weren't taught. It wasn't that it was illustrated. It wasn't that he didn't tell them exactly how to do right. It was that they had disconnected so much from righteousness that they no longer had a knowledge of it. They no longer had knowledge of it. And friends, let me tell you something. You can, you can be so close to God that you have a very clear understanding of righteousness, a very clear understanding of, of right versus wrong, of what sin is and what sin isn't. And you can, you can get away from God to the point that you don't have a clue anymore. You say, that doesn't seem like that's even possible. It's entirely possible. And it happens. And this is what he's pointing out here. And he says, because of that, you're going to be besieged. The word is besieged. That means that, that an army will surround you to the point that everything without is going to be eaten up, taken over, whatever, destroyed, one way or the other, because you're not going to be able to have it. Your enemies are going to take it. And then what's within is also going to be decimated. So you're going to be weakened from without, and you're going to be weakened within. Oh, Hallelujah. But the truth of the matter of it is, they were weakened from within, which is what allowed them to be weakened from without. And thus is the same with us today. Right? We are a chosen generation, right? A royal priesthood. Called forth to show forth the praises of him, right? We, we are the people of God. And so when when we fall, when somebody falls or walks away or whatever, it's never that they were just doing great the day before. Great relationship with God. Praying, fasting, reading the Bible. They were just doing wonderful. And the next day, they decide to commit some horrible sin. It's never that way. It always starts inside. Amen. We, we don't, we, 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 it's less about explosion and more about implosion. We implode because the structural of our spiritual self, the, the man or woman of God that we're supposed to be, the structure of, of prayer and fasting and study of the word and covenant relation, all this stuff that we have with God, all of that begins to go away and that structural support, when you remove the structural support, things tend to fall over, Right? And that's what he's saying here. Amos then uses an illustration that would be commonly understood by probably most shepherds or any shepherd of the time, but we may not quite get it. So he says in verse 12, Thus saith the Lord, As the shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria and in the corner of a bed in Damascus and a couch. And so when a, when a sheep would wander off, or as the Bible often puts it, goes astray, right? Go astray. Then it becomes easy prey for the lion. Amen. This is why spiritual disciplines matter. This is why spiritual disciplines matter. This is why church attendance matters. Right? Now, church attendance without spiritual disciplines I mean, faithfulness is a spiritual discipline, but just church attendance without all of the rest of the stuff is kind of pointless. But, but these things matter because it keeps us from wandering off. And there's a lot of stuff to distract us today. A lot of stuff to distract us. And so, so 
he says that the, the sheep wanders off, it becomes easy prey for the lion. And so this isn't so much, even though it's worded as it says, the shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion, uh, it's, it's not really saying that the shepherd fights the lion so that he can get a couple legs and a piece of an ear. If you're a shepherd and you come over the top of the hill and you see a lion and there's nothing left but a, a couple legs and a piece of an ear, you're not gonna go fight a lion. Right? It don't make any sense. So what this is really saying illustratively is you come upon the remains of a sheep. You come upon the remains of it. And he says, so basically, it, it's what all that's left is some insignificant scraps. Some just pointless, useless thing. There's, there's nothing there. He says, that's what's gonna be left of Israel. Hmm. That's what's gonna be left. There will be a remnant, but it ain't gonna be much. There will be something left, but it, it's not gonna really amount to anything. And so it's a vivid description of a, a sad, nauseating scene, but it, it, it's driving home the point. This is often how the prophets were used of God. They would speak to people, and they would use uh, illustratively, which is very significant because Jesus comes on the scene, and he uses all of his parables. Right? Amen. And so uh, this, this description is very vivid. And, and, and a righteous and a just God, if I say righteous... If I say just, a righteous and a just God cannot withhold the punishment of a rebellious people and, and still be righteous and still be just, right? So now, this may be a good time to remind us here that this is Old Testament and you and I live in what, you know, the dispensation of grace, the church age, but we need to remember that we also have a New Testament that gives us warning as well. All right? So before we just kind of say, man, whew, God was tough back then. Glad I didn't live back then. Well, I understand that. In fact, we are about the only people that have ever existed in the history of man that really understand that. This dispensation of grace that we live in and are a part of. Right? Since Calvary. How many are thankful? <laughs> Amen. We're thankful. But let's just, let's just look at a few things. I didn't write a lot of them down, but let's just look at a few. Let's look at Hebrews 30, uh, 10, 30 and 31. For we know him that has said, vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Amen. That's not Old Testament prophet. That's Hebrews. Okay, let's look at Romans. Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, chapter 2, verse 5, and we'll read a few verses. But after thy hardness and impenit, uh, impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He says, look, because of where your heart is, you are storing up for yourselves wrath. And when the day of wrath comes, it's coming at you. 
Who will render to every man according to his deeds? To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, what do those people get? They get eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, he says, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil. Everyone, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, but glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And then here's a line that shoots back to Amos, for there is no respect of persons with God. This is, this, is, this is the Apostle Paul in the New Testament speaking to people in Rome, throwback to, to, to prophets of the Old Testament saying, look, he's the same God. There's no respect of persons with him. He's a righteous, just God. And it don't matter who you are. Oh, hallelujah. Look at the church of Ephesus. Ephesians 5, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become as saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Because of these things comes the wrath of God. And then we can just look at one more prophetically in Revelation 14. This is just one, just grab one here. Verse nine, and the third angel, 9 and 11, 14, 9 to 11, and the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive the mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of indignation. It's poured out full force, without mixture. It's poured out without being diluted. It's poured out without mixture into the... Um, cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. So there's just a few, and there's 50 more in the New Testament that talk about the wrath of a righteous and just God. Somebody say Amen. So in truth, Amos is still speaking to us today. The reason why is because we are now, the, we are the Israel of our day. I know there's a nation called Israel. I understand that. I'm not trying to steal that. But what I'm saying is we are the people of God. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. We are that. We are people who were found in bondage but miraculously delivered, right? Just like they were in bondage and delivered, we were in bondage and delivered. And we weren't just delivered, but we were brought to a promise. For this promise is unto you and unto your children, right? 
And so we are connected to Israel very uh, 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 spiritually in that sense uh, that we are that. And so he, he points out we are the ones, or I, I'm, what I'm saying is we are the ones uh, who enjoy such glorious benefit of his being, of being his children. Therefore, when judgment comes, it will indeed come to us. If we have lived in iniquity, if we have lived in ingratitude, if we are living in sin against God, then we are not going to be able just to say, well, I'm an apostolic. I thought I got a pass. I went to Connect Point. Isn't that an automatic? No, it's not. Even this, well, I was baptized in Jesus' name. Well, I was filled with the Holy Ghost. What? What does he talk about? He says, if when he comes, if the workman is found doing, right? Doing righteousness, justice, doing what they're supposed to be doing, living how they're supposed to be living. And so we are Israel today in that sense. And so what Amos is saying to them, it very much can be applied to us. So we look at Amos, and, and, and now, so King Jeroboam, you'll remember, King Jeroboam uh, of the, this northern kingdom uh, is loving his power, man. He's loving it. Things are going really great in his point of view. They got all kinds of, uh, the economy's doing great. Everybody's serving him like they're supposed to. The rich are getting rich, and the people who don't matter don't matter. And, you know, everything's just going wonderful to, for King Jeroboam. Uh, so he decides that uh, he wants things to stay the way they're staying. And he knows that one of the reasons, this is the thing about King Jeroboam, it's the same with, with many of them, he knows that he's getting all of this stuff because people are living sinful lives. He is aware that Israel has turned its back on God. And that is why he is able to do all the things he is doing because they're doing all the sinful things that they're doing, and he wants them to stay that way, and he does not want them to repent. He does not want them to turn back to God. And so when we look at the, uh, uh, King Jeroboam in 1 Kings, it says in chapter 12, and Jeroboam said in his heart, listen to this, this is amazing. He said in his heart, now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If, everybody say if. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. He says, I got a problem. If the people ever decide to go back to Jerusalem and offer sacrifice like they were taught to do, they will repent. And if they repent, they ain't gonna like me anymore. Isn't that crazy? They're not going to like me anymore. And they'll kill me, and they'll go back. Whereupon, he goes on to say, the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. That's what he said to the people. It's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, pointing to the calves, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan, and this thing became a sin. 
For the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan, and he made a house of high places. Now look what he did. He made a house of high places. He made priests of the lowest of the people, which were neither the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month, on the 15th day of the month, like under the like under the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon an altar, so did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the 15th day of the eighth month, even in the, the month which he had devised of his own heart and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel. And he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. So this is what he does. He plays, this is King Jeroboam, he plays to their flesh. It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. That's, that's too far. You got things to do. You can't, you can't be going all the way to Jerusalem and making sacrifice. You see what he's doing? He's, he's playing to their flesh. And I could, I could, you know, the pastor in me wants to go a thousand ways with that, but, but I just won't. Thank you for being here tonight, by the way. Because I'm sure it could have been easy for the devil to tell you, it's, it's too much to get out and go to church tonight. It's already dark. It's supposed to get cold. It might snow. I can't go. Right? My favorite show is on. I didn't do my grocery shopping. I got, I think I might have a headache coming on. It's too much. It's too much to go up to Jerusalem, he says. You got other things. And so he says, behold, thy gods. He's got two golden calves. And then he says, the ones that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, some of you may remember, if you don't, please don't shake your head at me, it'll make me feel bad. But you may remember that I preached a little while ago about the children of Israel in the wilderness. And Moses was gone up the mountain and they went and they're talking to Aaron and they're complaining. And so he makes the, you know, the jewelry and he makes the golden calf. And in Exodus 32, look at the wording here. Now this is back when they're in the wilderness. Exodus 32, four. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with the gra uh, gra graving tool after he had made it in a molten calf and said, these be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. It's almost the same words that Jeroboam is going to say much later. Here's your gods, the ones that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so I'll just remind you of a couple of things I preached about. I'm not going to preach it again, but I'll remind you that uh, the, one of the first things is when we start making our own deity, we always make them multiple. Every time they made another deity, they always made like three of them. Kind of like Father, Son, Holy Ghost. When you start creating your own gods, if you're going to create a god, it can't be a real god. Because a human can't make a god. And so you have to make a god for this, and then there's a god for that. But then I need another god for this, and I need another. Because, you, because the idea of having one god, oh, Hallelujah. And so it's always multiple. And then when you create deities in your life, you always have to empower them through lying. Aaron said it and Jeroboam said it. Here's your, here's your gods, the ones that brought you up out of Egypt. 
golden calves. These are the ones that brought you out of Eden. And everybody there knows that's a lie. Every one of them knows. Jeroboam knows it's a lie. Everyone there knows it's a lie. Aaron knew it was a lie. And everyone around him knew it was a lie. Everybody knows it's a lie, but if you're going to create a God, you got to at least give him a backstory. you got to empower him some way. Oh, hallelujah. And so now he does something. This is interesting to me. He does something extremely similar. But this is a different time. Now, this is a... This is a, now a people that have long you know, lived in the land of promise, and they're serving a king, and the king doesn't serve the Lord, right? Even the nation's even divided, and it's all just, everything's wrong, everything's messed up. Yet he does everything very similar to what God's plan was. He creates a high place, temples. He ordains some priests, or he makes, he makes priests. He declares there to be a certain day of feast. It even says in there, it says, like unto the feast that is in Judah. Sacrifices were going to be made. There was an altar. There was incense burning. Does that sound familiar? Jeroboam tries to create his own temple in his own form of worship, unto his own God, but he makes it as close, this is really powerful if you catch it, he makes it as close and as similar to the real thing as he can. And yet, 1 Kings 12.30 says, and this thing became a sin. The worship that he offered them, the way he offered them to do it, the way it looked, the priest, the, the altar, the horns on the altar, the sacrifice, everything was very similar to true worship, and yet it was sin. Similar, yet sin. Oh, hallelujah. And we, we have got, hear me tonight, we, we must be very careful with our worship. We must be very careful with our worship because it all seemed very similar to what they had done unto the Lord before, and yet it's sin. We, don't, we do not want to fall into the trap of the devil who can create a way of worship that seems right. Everybody with me? But it's not right. Amen. And Amos shows God's feelings about the whole thing. Amen? Look what he does here. Verse 14, Amos 3. That in the day that I shall visit the transgression of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel. I'm also, the day I come for Israel and Jeroboam and all these people, I'm also going down there to Bethel where those calves are. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. The horns, this is my last point for tonight, okay? The horns that were on the corners of the altars was where the blood was applied. So in a way, this is the holiest place of the altar. 
the horns of the altar. And so in Bethel, he has an altar with horns on it and blood being applied to it. It seems right, but it's not. And this holy thing is being mocked and mimicked. Because mimicking it is mocking it. Everybody understand that? Mimicking it is mocking it. And that just, that just triggered something in my brain that somebody asked me about recently, so I'll just say it publicly. We don't, we don't worry about our little kids with that. The Bible says train up a child in the way that they should go, right? So sometimes little kids can walk up here, throw their hands in the air, have a big smile on their face, and they're looking around. They're not praying. That's not serious. You leave them alone. You leave them alone. They, 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 they start jumping. They start doing, you, you leave them just, you know, they start breaking stuff, then we'll calm them down. But that is not mockery. That's learning. It's learning. They'll get it. They'll get there. But this is not what this is. This is grown adults who know better. Creating something that seems to be what God would want, but knowing really that it's not. And they've got horns on their altars. They're sacrificing animals. This is all God. All of this came from God. And they're doing it knowing it's sin. They're killing animals and putting blood on horns and all of this stuff, this holy act. It's a mockery of holy things. And so his righteous and just plan that he created required true repentance, which required blood for cleansing. And because they mimicked it and therefore mocked it, God said, I'm not just going to destroy you, but I'm going to destroy that too. He says, the horns of it shall be cut off and fall to the ground because the people and even the things the people used. Oh, man. Are you getting a sense of the, 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 the wrath? The anger? Are you getting a sense of why God is angry? Because this is what's happening. This idolatrous king who keeps the people in sin so that he can have more, 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 more Unrighteous judges that we talked about last time that are stealing from even the very poor. And then he says, and I will smite the winter. The last verse, chapter three, we're just gonna stop here. And I will smite the winter house and the summer house and the houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. It's an interesting thing. Most, most of the stuff I read about that was the implication is, is that the very wealthy, the, the extremely wealthy, would, they, they built houses in different places so that different times of the year it was better to live here and then sometimes they wanted to live here and sometimes they wanted to live there. Now, well, I don't know if I said this last week. I might have or it might have been recently when I preach. But, you know, the truth of the matter is is that that's not in itself sinful. What's sinful is, is the way they got it. They got it by taking from other people. The Bible says, give, and it shall be given unto you. Right? 
pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom, right? The Bible says that you can, but you get that through giving. But this is through taking. Taking from the desperate, taking from the poor, taking from those that are down and trodden. And so he says, because you, he says, I, I am going to smite the winter house with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish. It's all going to fall apart because they were so, you're, you're unjust, and I'm a righteous God, I'm a just God. And he says, I'm going to destroy it. And this is, look at the verse 15. He says, and they shall have an end. Everybody say an end. It's, it's going to have an end. Not just, a, not just a temporary setback, an end. You're not just going to have a bad day, an end. Think about it. Egypt existed after God did everything he did to it. Right? Because God came in with the sole purpose, not saying, Egypt, you're done, I'm going to destroy you completely. Saying, Egypt, let my people go. You let my people go and I won't do this to you. They wouldn't do it. So the plagues, Right? And all the stuff that happens. But when they leave, when Israel leaves, Egypt's still there. Now, they got a whole generation of fighting men that die in the Red Sea, and they're decimated, and they were basically plundered on the way out. But they still exist. But he says here, he says, look, I am, Jeroboam, I'm going to end you. And all these people that are with you. In fact, when I'm done with you, it's just going to be a little piece of an ear. Hmm. Just a little fragment that you were even here. It's all going to have an end. Perhaps, perhaps that end with those houses was going to come when that earthquake hit that Amos tells us happened two years later. It's very interesting that geological analysis of archaeological evidence found that roughly during that time period there were 11 major earthquakes in a pretty broad span, but they narrow it down. They found that there were two earthquakes in the time of Amos. And one of them was so powerful that it pretty much puts all the rest of them to shame. An extremely powerful earthquake that left its mark. In fact, there's a fault line that goes right underneath the Dead Sea. And because it's under the bottom of the Dead Sea, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a good record of because there's not been a lot of human activity, there's a good representation of how the earth has shifted over time. And during Amos' time, uh, geological analysis says, of archaeological evidence, there was a major earthquake. Perhaps that's what took down their winter houses and their summer houses. Amen? And then Amos ends this chapter 3. And he says, just let me remind you who is all this judgment talk is coming from. Saith the Lord. Saith the Lord. Who's going to do it, Amos? Who's going to smite the houses? Who's going to leave nothing left but a piece of an ear? Who's going to tear down? Who's going to cut the horns off our altars? Who's going to knock me off my throne? He is. The Lord is the one that's saying all this stuff. And the reason why we look at books like Amos today, it's not just historical. Because it's so very applicable to our lives today. Let's stand together. So very applicable to our lives today.
Amen. So I would encourage you, if you were not here last week, to get on and listen to the lessons I decided. Thank you for listening to our podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this message. Remember, if you would like to find out more information about our church or to contact us, please go online at connectpointupc.com. And also don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app so you will be automatically notified of new episodes. Thank you and we hope you have a great week. Thank you.